It is great to be here. I, uh, we were here back at the end of January, um, came and were greeted so warmly. It feels like we're back home, so it's wonderful to be back with you. And it is a delight for me to stand in this pulpit. I thank Jay and the rest of the elders for the invitation to come. And you guys take care of your leaders so well, and I am so grateful for that. And so it's an opportunity for me to to be here and to open the Word of God to you. And it is a joy and a privilege for me. Today, the message that I want to share with you is very close to my heart. Uh, It's a message that has basically struck a chord with me over the last number of years. And it's a message that I believe applies to each and every one of us sitting here this morning. It is a message that is really reflected in the last song that we sang, which is to keep our eyes fixed on heaven above. Again, keeping an eternal perspective, and especially when the trials and the difficulties and challenges come to our Christian faith. I think it is safe to say this morning that Over the last several years, many of us have had our share of difficulties and challenges. We know that we live in an unstable world, and I'm sure that every one of us sitting here this morning has had to deal with a certain level of personal instability as well. That instability is part of what it means to be a Christian living in a fallen world, but for some, that instability can seem insurmountable. Well, this morning, I want to do what is on the heart of every pastor, and that is to lift you up with a word of encouragement. In fact, what I'd like to try and do for you today is to help you regain your perspective, your focus with regards to the Christian life. And it is to have a biblical perspective And especially as we try to make sense of the difficulties that come into our new life in Christ. Well, the only way that I know how to encourage you and to encourage you the best is to direct your attention to the unchanging and infallible word of God. And that is what I want to do this morning. No doubt when we are faced with discouragement, despair, and we begin to lose our perspective, what is best for us is to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to run and take refuge from the word of the Lord. No doubt there are many passages that you can think of that come to mind for you to find comfort and security and stability when things are going tough and things are difficult. But like me, there are certain passages that seem to always come to mind. They seem to always resonate very significantly, and they're the ones we seem to run to most often. Those verses not only remind us of God's sovereignty, his love, his mercy, and his care, but they really point us to that one place where we need to go for true hope, and again, for a sense of true spiritual revival. These passages remind us of how important it is for us to set our affections on the things that are above and not on the things that are on this earth. And if you're like me, 
those are the ones that seem to just come at you more and more and more each and every day you live your Christian life. Those scripture references, those passages that seem to resonate with your very internal soul. And again, these are the ones that we need to stay focused on because they conform our mind to the mind of Christ. Perhaps Psalm 42 is one of those verses that reminds you often that God is your hope, that God is the only true hope. He is the help of our countenance and our God, the psalmist says. It's interesting, the psalmist goes on to say that when we're confronted with despair and our soul has become disturbed within us, what are we exhorted to do? Psalm 42 says, hope in God. For, I, for then I shall yet praise him. And why? Why is it those circumstances when difficulty comes and we need to focus our, our mind on God, find our hope in him, that we shall praise him? Why? Because he is the help of our countenance and he is our God. Likewise, Lamentations chapter 3, the prophet Jeremiah reminds us not only that God is faithful, but his loving kindness and his compassion never fails. It's interesting that when you read those verses in the context of Lamentations 3, Jeremiah, with overwhelming despair, says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Well, why such hope, Jeremiah, especially in a time of difficulty? It is because the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. In fact, Jeremiah goes on to say that they are new how often? Every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Once again, the prophet or the writer of scripture says, therefore I have hope in him. Well, it's these and many other passages that are really meant to give us divine encouragement in a deep time of discouragement and despair. And no doubt there are many other passages, and many of those are etched in our minds. Uh, But for me, the most comforting passage in all of Scripture really is the text that I want to bring before you this morning. Um, When I am tempted to give up, when I am tempted to give in, This text reminds me that I need to persevere no matter how difficult the trial gets. And it's here that I find my greatest encouragement to really maintain a proper biblical perspective. And this passage is here to remind us that if there is one thing that is true about the Christian life, it's that difficulty and discouragement is an inevitable part of the Christian life. And so we need to remind one another that as a true disciple of Christ, we must maintain the right perspective. And we need to stay focused on heaven above, and especially when those difficulties come rushing into our lives, um, like the unrelenting surf of the sea. Well, let me be clear to you this morning, without any ambiguity whatsoever, those times of difficulty will come. They will. And that is because the Bible tells us that hardships are unavoidable in the Christian life. How do we know this? Jesus told this uh, this to us. He said in John 16, 33, that in the world you will, not you may, but you will have tribulation. 
But take courage. Why? Because I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. James chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that we need to consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you face or encounter trials. Why? Because it's not if you encounter those trials, but when that makes them unavoidable. And again, the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, are we ready to face those trials when they come? Because those trials, those difficulties, those hardships, those tribulations, those persecutions, they are all part of what it means to live the Christian life. And the more significant question that I want to try to answer this morning is how are we going to face those trials when they indeed come? What perspective are we going to have when it comes to dealing with the content of those trials? Well, the one place that we need to go in learning about diversity and one place that we can go often is to the writings of the Apostle Paul. And that's because Paul was a man who learned to endure trials. He learned to endure the difficulties in order to glorify God with his life. The one thing that Paul would proclaim from this pulpit is perspective is everything. And that's because if our perspective isn't right, then we won't know how to navigate the difficulties of our Christian life. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, please open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives us a very personal insight into his life and ministry. And three times he makes reference in this epistle to the hardships and the afflictions that he had to suffer as a servant of Christ. Well, after giving us a brief and personal testimony in the first part of 2 Corinthians, he then drives his point home here in the latter part of this monumental chapter which is chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. And for our time this morning, I want us to focus in primarily on these three verses. Verses 16, 17, and 18. This is where the Bible gives us three principles for dealing with life's difficulties. The first of these principles, and I'm going to go through these rapidly right now. We'll go through them again, but to start off, these three principles include these. Number one... Do not let what is physical distract you from what is spiritually renewing. Do not let what is physical distract you from what is spiritually renewing. In other words, focus on the spiritual and not on the physical. The second principle is don't let the present blind you from what awaits you in the future. Another way of saying this would be to focus on the future and not on the present. And then finally, principle number three is don't let what is visible and temporal keep you from seeing what is truly eternal. This is really the encouragement to all of us here. We need to focus on the eternal. We need to focus on the things that are where God is and not the temporal. If you put each one of these three principles into practice... This is when you will know how to maintain the right perspective regarding your Christian life. And my prayer for us this morning is that if we learn to internalize 
these three principles and we apply them directly to our difficulties when we come, when they come into our lives. It is when those turbulent storms t- start to take place that that is when we will have the comfort and the security and we will have the stability that we need having the right perspective. And this is how we will know how to navigate our way to the safety and security that only God can provide. Again, it's not that we'll avoid the trials. It's not that we'll avoid the difficulties. But with God's help, we will know how to navigate through them successfully as we walk faithful to Christ. Now, before we focus in on each of these three principles, I want to read them for you. And I'd like to then briefly set the context for you for these verses And as is, I know, your practice here at Calvary, um, which I love, I would like you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read specifically 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, and that's what we're going to focus our attention on. Paul writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is God's infallible word. You go ahead and be seated. Chapter 4 is a, like I said before, a very pivotal chapter in Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians, as you may or may not know, is actually one of four letters that Paul wrote to this troubled church. Two of his letters, which are inspired by God, are recorded for us here in the pages of the New Testament. But after a year and a half of ministry in Corinth, Paul left the city to go and minister then to the church at Ephesus. Shortly after his arrival at Ephesus, he received some very distressing reports regarding the church at Corinth. And based on what he wrote in the letter we call 1 Corinthians, he then addresses those concerns and he tries to help the church spiritually. We know that Paul wrote an initial letter to the church before 1 Corinthians to confront those concerns. And he then references back to that letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. But it was during his third missionary journey that the church then wrote back to him, asking Paul for his counsel on a series of important issues. And as a result, 1 Corinthians was written in response to those issues. Now, we know that Based on historical accounts, Paul wanted to go and visit Corinth, but he was unable to. So he sent his son in the faith, Timothy, along with 1 Corinthians, to assist the church in resolving those problems. At first, his instructions seemed to be a huge help to the church. But shortly thereafter, a much more dangerous threat came into the church. False teachers claiming to be true apostles infiltrated the church. And they launched an all-out attack on the Apostle Paul, questioning his apostolic credibility. As a result, many in the church were then led away, led astray. 
When Paul heard about this, he immediately left Ephesus to visit the church at Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he called that visit his sorrowful visit. Basically, it was a visit that ripped Paul's heart apart. Apparently, there was one individual in particular who was in the church who had openly attacked Paul's credibility. And at the time, the church then refused to confront that offender. Because of this, Paul was filled with intense grief. He left Corinth. He returned back to Ephesus. And this is when he then sat down and composed what he called his third letter, a tearful letter. He then had it delivered to Corinth by way of his other son in the faith, that being Titus. And I know you're familiar with Titus going through the book of Titus now. But again, he sent him to Ephesus to try to minister to the church and express Paul's heart. Well, Paul then left Ephesus and made his way north to the city of Troas. He had hoped to meet up with Titus to find out what had happened to the church at Corinth. And when that meeting never took place, Paul then had a tremendous ministry opportunity in Troas, but then was very much concerned still about the church in Corinth. When he failed to meet up with Titus, that's when he left Troas, went across the water to Macedonia, and it was in Macedonia that Paul then finally met up with Titus. And again, when they met up together, it was a joyful visit because Titus told Paul that many in the church had repented of their sin. We can imagine that Paul must have been filled with just sheer delight, joy at what God had accomplished. But more importantly, Titus told Paul that the church had reaffirmed their commitment to the truth, to the truth. To Paul's dismay, though, Titus also had to tell him that the false teachers were still there. They still were entrenched in the church. There were some that even continued to question Paul's credibility as an apostle of Christ. And so from Macedonia, most likely from the city of Philippi, Paul then sat down and he wrote 2 Corinthians to defend his apostolic ministry against their vicious attacks. He knew that all he could do was to remind the church of what they already knew. Not only did Paul reaffirm his love for the church in this wonderful 13-chapter letter, but again, despite the false accusations and the malicious attacks, Paul then reminded the church, the faithful believers there, that they were not to be discouraged. This is when he wanted the rest of the church to not lose heart. It's here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that then Paul Uh, takes a decisive moment to reflect on these present difficulties. He concludes his thoughts by giving the church one of the most important principles that we could ever learn concerning the Christian life. And that overarching principle I want you to see here very clearly is in verse 15. Ultimately, our suffering is meant to accentuate The grace of God. And this is one principle that I want you to just leave with today is that 
the purpose of our present suffering as we endure as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ is meant to achieve one single purpose, and that it's meant to glorify God in the midst of intense difficulty. That our suffering, our again, our, our struggles, our difficulties are meant to spread the grace of God to others so that their giving of thanks abounds to the glory of God. It's with that context that we come then to verses 16 through 18. Paul says here, in order for your thanks to abound to the glory of God, Here is the perspective that I want you to have so that you don't lose heart. First, don't get sidetracked by the physical hardships that are overwhelming you. Focus on what is spiritual. Second, don't be blinded by the present difficulties that you are going through. Instead, focus on the future. And then finally... Again, take your eyes off of what is visible. Put them on what is invisible, not temporal, but eternal. Because when you do this, not only will your perception of your circumstances change, but you will find that your mind will be set on the things that are above and not on the things that are on this earth, which is where our mind needs to be placed in the first place. This is what it means to have the right perspective as a believer in Jesus Christ. And right here, Paul is saying perspective is everything. And so if you would, look with me at the beginning of verse 16. I'm going to go through these principles fairly briefly. I'll go through them one at a time, but they are powerful. The first principle that we need to focus on is don't let the physical difficulties distract you from what is truly spiritual and renewing. Paul put it this way in verse 16. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is what? Being renewed day by day. The first principle begins with having a right internal perspective, a right internal perspective. In other words, you must have the right state of being in order to be a true child of God and to see the purpose in your struggle and your sufferings. Another way of saying this is that you and I need to learn to focus on the inner man rather than being distracted by what's happening to the outer man. Why? Because as Paul puts it here, the outer man is ultimately decaying. The inner man is being renewed day by day. The outer man here is a really a wonderful translation of what is literally the outside. It's a word that has to do with the exterior part of man, the physical body. What Paul is saying here is don't get focused on that part of yourself that's in a continuous state of decay. Rather, stay focused on the immaterial part of yourself, which is your spirit. Because why? That's going to last forever. Why have this perspective? Because as a Christian, we know that our inner man is being renewed day by day, every single moment of the day. 
When Paul says that our outer man is decaying, many people here have a tendency to think that he's just referring to the normal processes of dying, the normal physical processes of decaying. And that's definitely part of what Paul is saying here. But given the greater context of where this is placed in the book of 2 Corinthians, what Paul is really referring to here is the exterior part of man that's being worn out for the, God, for the cause of Christ. That's being worn out for the really purposes and the commission of Christ. On a physical level, every single person is in the process of, de- of dying and decaying. Every part of our body is in the process physically of going back to the dust from which it came. But as a servant of Christ, there is also this There are these physiological hardships that are directly related to those conflicts that are associated with our ministry for the Lord. And it is those physiological hardships that have everything to do with the suffering that we have and that we perform for the cause of Christ. If you want to read a graphic description of the kind of hardships that Paul has in mind here, You need only go to chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. We won't go there this morning, but Paul doesn't hold back when he when he lays out all the sufferings that he's had to go through for the cause of Christ. And again, Paul does that because he's illustrating that when we're talking here about the outer man decaying, we're talking about those physiological traumas that happen to the body that ultimately send us to the grave maybe earlier than expected. But again, Paul was a man who, who knew what it meant to be physically beat up, worn down for the joy of serving Christ. And why? Because he served Christ with every fiber of his being. Every time I find myself going through a trial, any kind of trial, whether it be a small trial, a big trial, a minor difficulty or a major difficulty, I need to remind myself to put your... Put your feet in Paul's shoes. Walk the way he walked so that you understand really what it means to suffer for the cause of Christ. As a Christian, we need to think very seriously about what it means to suffer for the cause of Christ. And the truth here is that our trials and our sufferings for Christ are going to affect us physically. But Paul says those physical difficulties are going to have the opposite effect on our inner man. Instead of wearing us down and discouraging us, Paul says, my inner man is what? Being renewed. It's being renewed day by day. I love that. Paul knew that the internal and the immaterial part of himself was far more significant than the outer, external, physical body that he had. He knew that the day was coming when he was going to lay this carcass aside and exchange it for something that was far more substantial. And that's because he was living every single moment of his day in that moment that he knew his glorification was about to arrive. Likewise, you and I must be encouraged to live exactly the same way as he did. Paul took great comfort in knowing that what was really important was not only his was not his own physical security, but the sanctification of his eternal soul. And again, Paul knew that that was happening because his inner man was being renewed. And that was what was going to last forever. That 
As long as he was suffering for the cause of Christ, this meant that he was going to have to die ultimately to his outer man. Clearly, Paul wanted to be just like Christ. He knew that the reason for his afflictions, for his difficulties, for his challenges, the tribulations that came in his life were so that, in fact, look back at verse 10 in chapter 4 here. It was so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Again, Paul had such clarity in his perspective. He knew that the physical hardships, again, would never cease so long as he lived in this earthen vessel. But as he says in verse 7, each and every day was another opportunity to learn that the surpassing greatness of his power will be of God and not of ourselves. So here Paul says he wanted every day of his life to be renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And no doubt Paul passed along this principle to every single church he had the privilege of being involved with. In fact, Paul told the church at Philippi, the place from where he wrote this letter, that he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Paul made it abundantly clear that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. How was he to know that? He wanted to know it because he needed to know it through the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings so that he could be conformed to his death. Well, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do I have that same perspective? Do I really understand what it means to live for Christ? Do we really understand what it means to suffer like Christ? Or are we trying to shield ourselves from those trials that God then brings into our life to conform us to the image of the one who created us? Make no mistake, God is the one who allows trials to come into your life. God is the one who has ultimate sovereignty over all of those. And just To drive the principle home by way of application, I want you to consider this one foundational truth. When we are weak physically, when we are at the end of ourselves, and there is no other place to go but to God, this is when we are finally at a place when we could be made spiritually strong. How do we know this? Because at the end of this wonderful letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these amazing words. He says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am strong. And the principle that God is driving home for us this morning is don't let the external difficulties distract you or keep you from focusing on what is inherently internal for the Christian and ultimately spiritually renewing. Another way of putting this would be to say, remember that God always has a divine purpose for those trials that he allows into your life. Amen? Again, they are to bring us to a place where we are most dependent on God and not ourselves. For when I am physically, emotionally, and psychologically at the end of myself, and I have absolutely nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn for help 
other than God, then Paul says, that's when I am spiritually strong. And the point is this, our perspective must be spiritual and not physical. It must be spiritual and not physical. Every day could be that day when I finish my race for Christ. And personally, I'm reminded of this every time I hear of someone who is about to die. I tell you, physically, it is so painful to watch a friend or a loved one deteriorate before your eyes. However, the spiritual principle that Paul is bringing across here for the Christian life is this. It is not until that EKG machine goes flatline that we then truly live for Jesus Christ. We must die to ourselves each and every day. And Paul says it's the sufferings that we experience now that are achieving for us something far more significant than anything that we could possibly imagine. And that then brings us to principle number two, which is found in verse 17. Not only do we not want to let the physical difficulties distract us from what is spiritually renewing, but don't let the present difficulties blind you from what awaits you in the future. Look at verse 17. Why should we have this perspective? Well, Paul lays it out here. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is perhaps one of the most exciting verses in all the New Testament. Not only did Paul know that his physical sufferings are what made him strong spiritually, but they also had the effect of securing his heavenly reward. When we suffer for Christ, and I mean when we do what is right before God, we must learn to view our earthly existence from heaven's perspective and not from earth's perspective. Why? Because our momentary light affliction is the means that God is using in our life to safeguard our eternal reward. This is such an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul here. Paul's physical afflictions were constant. They were physically intense. And yet, he also says they were momentary. They were light. How can you say that, Paul? I haven't even gone through a fraction of what you've been through to suffer for the cause of Christ. What do you mean here? Another way of saying this is that They were easy to bear and truly insignificant compared to the reward that was waiting for him in eternity. In other words, our hardships here are nothing, nothing in light of the reward that awaits us in the future. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being far more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From a world's perspective, the Christian life is an absolute anomaly. The world looks at us and says it is completely abnormal for anyone to experience true joy and peace while at the same time neck deep in the midst of difficulty and suffering. 
Even still, the Bible tells us our sufferings in this life are producing for us, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory. So every word that we speak, every decision that we make, every action that we do has an eternal impact on our heavenly reward. And again, in sharp contrast to what we endure down here, what awaits us in eternity is quite literally the manifestation of the glory of God, Paul says. As a Christian, we must be reminded that there is a direct connection between the suffering of this life and the glory that awaits us in the future. Why? Because the two are part of the exact equation that it takes to unlock God's purpose for our life. As we suffer for Christ here and now, there are also this this ever-increasing capacity that God has given us, again, to praise him and to give thanks to him in the midst of challenges and difficulties that come into our lives to the praise and the glory of God in eternity above. Why and how? It is because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Again, the, the Apostle Peter writes this, 1 Peter 4, 13, he says, To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Praise him now, because when glory comes, you will praise him all the more. Thank God for the problem of your pain, Paul is saying. When the piles of trials keep coming into your life, rejoice so that when you suffer for Christ, you're doing so to please him. Whether in your job, your home, your relationships with others, persevere in doing what is right before the Lord. Learn how to rejoice now because the day is coming when you're going to rejoice with exceeding exaltation. And again, look at verse 17. I love this final phrase. It's the phrase, far beyond all comparison. Paul says, you and I have no idea what kind of eternal weight of glory we are going to receive for our momentary light affliction in this life. Yet for those who suffer for doing what is truly right, your eternal reward will be far beyond All comprehension. Literally, the phrase here is hyperbole to hyperbole or excess to excess. It is a phrase that Paul uses here to exceed all limits. All limits. And again, one commentator puts it this way. It is beyond the possibility of overstatement or exaggeration. We just can't even fathom it. We can't fathom the glory that awaits us. And again, you and I have absolutely no idea how to describe really the glorious inheritance that awaits us in the future. We see, again, passages all over the scriptures that tell us what it's going to be like. But to imagine it, to see it, to experience it, we have no comprehension. Paul says, don't let the present blind you from what's ahead. For the beleaguered Christian... This is the strongest expression of our complete confidence in the future glory that awaits us at the coming of Christ. To put it another way, the difficulties of this life are minor, minor when compared to the wonder of our eternal salvation. 
God says, don't let the difficulties that are right there in front of you wear you down spiritually. Don't let them blind you to what God has prepared for you in the future. Focus on the eternal weight of glory that awaits you when you're going through that difficulty. And then finally, principle number three, which is verse 18. Don't let what is visible and temporal keep you from seeing what is truly eternal. Verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's interesting, throughout these three verses, just these three verses, Paul continues to make one sharp contrast after, the, after another. The first contrast that he makes is between the outer man and the inner man. The second is between our momentary light affliction and God's eternal weight of glory. And now finally, here in verse 18, the contrast is between the things which are seen and the things which are not seen. In verse 18, the difference between the things that are seen here and unseen are as great as the expanse that exists between those things that are temporal and those things that are truly eternal. Paul says our perspective must be fixed on the eternal realities, not on the temporal realities of this life. Why? Because this is what we need to work hard at seeing. I want you to keep in mind here, fixing our eyes on the things that are eternal is not an instinctive thing for us. We have to work hard at it. Everything about this world is telling us to do the exact opposite of what Paul is having us focus on here. And not only is it hard to stay focused on what is eternal, it is actually, it actually requires painstaking effort on our part to just take the concentrated time to focus in on it. That's why daily Bible reading, daily time spent in God's word will renew your mind, conform your mind to the mind of Christ so that you can have that perspective when you go through these trials. What God is saying here is that our our Christian perspective begins when our perspective is readjusted heavenward, when we fix our eyes on eternity. And that can only happen when we are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we're told to set our mind on the things above and not on the things that are on this earth. According to Philippians 3.20, we are to set our mind on the things above. Why? Because this is where our citizenship is. It is in heaven. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the trial and the difficulty that comes into your life? Or is your focus set on that trial? Again, we need to turn our gaze heavenward. As a Christian, our home is not here. Instead, it's in that place where God is endless, undying, everlasting, and eternal. And so in contrast, when Paul refers here to the things that are temporal, he's talking about those things that are destined to perish. This includes everything that you and I can see with our physical eyes, touch with our physical hands. Paul says it's all going to go away. It's all going to be gone. It is rapidly decaying. Eventually, everything you see around you will disappear. The allurements 
of this passing world should hold absolute, no lasting interest for the believer who is in Christ. Instead, we should fix our mind on the realities that are destined to last forever. For us, those eternal realities include two things. The glory of God and the eternal souls of mankind. Our responsibility is to live for Christ. It is to proclaim the gospel to the world. Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? It's to get, die is gain. But so long as I'm here, I continue to press, proclaim the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul said to Timothy, You need to be willing to endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. What is so amazing about what Paul is doing here is he's expressing his passion for God and his compassion for others. And again, he knows that expressing this will eventually cost him his life. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to count the cost ourselves? In chapter 5, just one more chapter over than what we're looking at here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we know that this earthly tent, this body is going to be torn down because God has a better house waiting for us. The reason we should be filled with encouragement is because we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. We know that one day on the most glorious day of days, we will be absent from the body and finally be at home with the Lord. Knowing this, Paul says, whether here on earth or at home with the Lord, our ambition is to be pleasing to him. God has a divine purpose for your trials, for your difficulties. He's causing all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And when those trials and those difficulties come, we need to remind ourselves that our perspective is Christ. It is not our circumstances. Again, it is Christ. It is because when our eyes are fixed on him, perspective means everything. You all know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. You know that God used Joseph to preserve the nation of Israel as a testimony to his love and his, uh, his unwavering commitment to his chosen people. At the end of his life, Joseph made an amazing declaration to his brothers. I call this, you know, whenever you go to the optometrist, you want to Find out what's going on with your eyes to see if you're seeing 20-20 or not. I call this the 50-20 principle. That despite everything that had happened to him, all the pain and the misery that all of that had caused, Genesis 50-20 says this, As for you, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. Why? In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Like Joseph, our trials and our difficulties have a way of reminding us that God is using them for his glory and our good. And again, 
This is something that needs to orient our perspective heavenward. Thomas Watson, the great English Puritan, once said, Affliction has a way of quickening our pace on the way to heaven. That when God lays men on their backs, it's then they look up heavenward. I love that. Watson goes on to write that a godly man is heavenly in his disposition. He sets his affection affections on the things above. And as a result, he does this. I love this. He sends his heart to heaven before he gets there. Well, if I can encourage you this morning, when your trial comes, and it will, when it seems insurmountable, and at times it will, recognize that God is the one who has allowed this momentary light affliction to come into your life. He allows it for the pur- his purposes so that his perspective, again, will become our perspective. And it will be spiritual rather than physical. It'll be future rather than present. It'll be eternal rather than temporal. And even so, when those trials come, and they certainly will, may we all, in response to those difficulties... Be those, as Thomas Watson wrote, who send our heart to heaven before it's time for us to get there. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the trials and the difficulties that come into our life. And that seems like such an unusual statement to say, especially in a world that tries to avoid every obstacle, every difficulty, every trial. But, Lord, you allow these to come into our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. You allow them to come so that we can see the surpassing value of knowing you and seeing that the power is of you and not of ourselves. Father, you allow them to come in so that we can see Christ, our Savior, the one who bore eternal punishment for our sin who rose from the dead and gave us life eternal. Father, we need Christ. Christ needs to be the focus of our life, but he also needs to be our life. If there is anybody sitting here today that's going through trials and doesn't have this focus, who does not know you, I pray that they would come to saving faith now. But for those of us who struggle And the trials seem insurmountable. I pray that you would give us this eternal perspective. Help us to look up to heaven with a smile on our face and to say, Lord, it's only a matter of time before we get there because we're sending our heart there now. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in the days ahead. I pray that you would give us again your grace and an overwhelming thanks for what you have accomplished for us in Christ. And in doing so, May your gospel be proclaimed, and may many come to saving faith in in Christ. We pray this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.